Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Uh, welcome. I am Thomas Kelly, and I am the host of Jussie, the podcast. And you are listening now to episode five, cross-exam. And this is virtually a cross-examination of special prosecutor Dan Webb with commentary now by our lead investigative reporter, Shelley Stanley, commenting on uh, various statements by Dan Webb in his uh, Q&A in episode four of the Jussie podcast. And we are in episode five, a kind of a special episode. We are reprising uh, the episode four in its entirety with comments at various points by Shelley Stanley. So uh, let's get into it. Episode five of the Jussie podcast on Revolver cross-exam. Dan, who asked you or appointed you to be special prosecutor in the Jussie Smollett case? Uh, I was contacted by Judge Tuman, the highly respected judge in the Sir Court of Cook County. He had been assigned to handle the motion that had been filed to appoint a special prosecutor. And after having all the legal briefs and everything, I had nothing to do with that. There was others that were involved in that, so I had no connection to it. But eventually, Judge Tuman in June of 2019, entered an order that he was going to appoint a special prosecutor. He then went through the uh, process of trying to select a special prosecutor, and it took him a couple of months to do that. At some point during his search, he had reached out to me. He and I knew each other from years ago when we were younger lawyers before he became a judge, and I was a young assistant U.S. attorney. We knew each other uh, professionally, uh, and he reached out to me, and we started having a couple conversations. And basically, at the end of the day, Judge Tuman told me that he believed, based on reviewing all the briefs and legal information he'd been given, that there was clearly an unusual disposition of this case by the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, that complete dismissal of the Smollett case had eroded the public's confidence in the Cook County criminal justice system. And Judge Tuman basically discussed with me his view that they needed somebody like me who had had quite a bit of experience over the years 
as a trial lawyer and also as someone that actually had been a special prosecutor on several other occasions, uh, he felt it was important to help restore the credibility of the court system is to have someone like myself selected to be the special prosecutor so that whatever decisions I made, a special prosecutor would hopefully be viewed by the public as being fair and impartial in trying to deal with the, uh, I call it the, the major crisis of confidence uh, in our Cook County criminal justice system because of the fallout of the Smollett case. And after I talked to Judge Tuman about it, I eventually decided that I would, I would, I would accept it. We have our lead investigative reporter, Shelley Stanley, here. Okay, you have yeah, something so, to say about uh, Dan Webb's take on restoring the integrity of the justice system. Yeah, I think that that's a very telling thing that he's speaking about because it shows an agenda um, from the beginning. He and other people in Chicago uh, justice system were saying that Jesse's case undermined uh, the credibility of the justice system, but you know, the Cook County justice system and CPD were in a legitimate, a crisis of legitimacy before the Jesse Smollett case. They had been put under a federal court order um, and were being highly watched by the federal government. The taxpayers had paid out $500 million in misconduct lawsuits for CPD in an eight-year period. They had a torture scandal going on, the Laquan McDonald scandal. They're called the false conviction capital of the country, and they're also nicknamed Crook County because of the justice system. So for Dan Webb to say that Jesse Smollett was the cause of the crisis of credibility in Cook County is quite inaccurate. Uh, Thank you, Shelley. Good point. Uh, Let's move on. Is it true that you provided all of your exhaustive work and excellent work on this case, pro bono, at no charge to the city or the county? That is correct, uh, Tom. That When I was asked to be the special prosecutor, uh, I came back to my firm and had discussions with the firm. I believed and my firm agreed with me. In fact, I got great support from the firm and my partners, which I'm very proud of, that if we're going to do something like this, where the public's confidence needs to be restored, that whoever does it, should do it pro bono so that there could be no concern that there was any benefit bestowed on my firm for doing it. And it's a public service. And we, yes, we did it for, there was no charge whatsoever, nothing. We didn't charge for expenses, time. It was completely pro bono. Uh, Shelley, do you have a comment on that? I do. It is um, publicly accessible information on the board of commissioners for Cook County that Dan Webb, despite saying there was no charge whatsoever, nothing, that it was completely pro bono, that that is verifiably false. Um, On the Cook County Board of Commissioners, you can see that Winston and Strom had charged the city $34,800 through September 2020. Now, the trial took place in November and December 2021. So by, you know, a year and a few months earlier, they had already charged 34000 So I'm Were you able to find any paid bills after that 34000 There have been no filing since then. So it's unclear to me if they will file after the end of the, uh, tr- you know, after Jesse is sentenced. 
mm-hmm. the trial is completely finished, that's still to be determined. But, you know, I know that Winston and Strom would usually charge much more than that, one would think. But for Dan Webb to say there was no charge whatsoever, it was completely pro bono, we didn't charge for expenses, that is not true. They did charge at least 34800 a year before the trial. I think it may be that that's a fraction of what Winston Strawn would charge. But, hey, a little bit wrong is wrong. So why was this case so important to you? Why were you so dedicated to this fourth-degree disorderly conduct case? I'm glad you asked that question, Tom, because I'm, here, here's what happened. I'm a farm kid from southern Illinois <laughs> that came to Chicago without a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of. And this city has been so good to me. I'm telling you, for 40 years, I've had the pleasure of living in this city and practicing law and being part of the, the system of justice here. And I get so enraged, I mean enraged, when I see these talking heads on Fox and CNN and other networks that take unreasonable and unfair shots at the city of Chicago and at Chicago Police Department. The honest-to-God truth is we have a great city with great governance, and we have a great police department. Now, we get criticized because in Chicago we have major issues with gangs, but I am proud of the city, and I'm proud of the Chicago Police Department. I have enormous loyalty to the the, the people that run the city and, and the Chicago Police Department, and when I saw what Mr. Smollett had done. Uh, Shelley, you must have a comment about that. I do. You know, Dan Webb is saying that he took the case because of his enormous loyalty to the people who run the city of Chicago and to the Chicago Police Department and because he gets enraged at um, their, anybody criticizing them. Um, but Dan Webb was assigned to be an impartial investigator in this case to determine whether Jesse Smollett had done anything wrong at all. Yet Dan Webb is saying here that he came in with an agenda to defend the Chicago Police Department and the city, and that he came in because he was upset at what Smollett had done to CPD and to the city of Chicago. So Dan Webb is admitting here that he already had an opinion on Jesse Smollett's guilt before he started his investigation. And Jesse Smollett, again, had not been to trial He was supposed to have the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty in court. And yet the special prosecutor assigned to the case is admitting he already believed 100 percent in Jesse Smollett's guilt and he believed in CPD's innocence in this case. Hey, that's a great point, Shelley. Just one question. He was not named judge of the case. He was named special prosecutor. And isn't a special prosecutor at least allowed, if not encouraged, 
to take a hard stance against the defendant. He's the prosecutor. Dan Webbs was tasked with seeing if Kim Fox had done anything wrong in dropping the charges against Jesse and also in investigating the Chicago Police Department's behavior in this case. And I think it's fair to say that he didn't look too much into the Chicago Police Department end of it. He said in his report that he only looked into the leaks of the Chicago Police Department. So I do understand what you're saying about, you know, a prosecutor usually believes in the person he's prosecuting's guilt. You know, I think the bigger issue here is the agenda that Dan Webb was coming in to this case with. It's a much bigger agenda than Jesse Smollett and and his own specific case. It's an agenda about the city of Chicago, the crisis of legitimacy, the police department, and how they're viewed. That's a much bigger agenda. I want to follow up on that. I think that's pretty interesting, Shelley. You're saying that, sure, he can prosecute Jesse for the crime of disorderly conduct, but you're saying that Dan Webb had a much bigger agenda in mind, and that was to make, are you saying that what they really tried to do was make Jussie the scapegoat for everything that was wrong in Chicago? I think that's correct, because that's what Dan Webb is is pretty much saying here, and that he said earlier, you know, that he came in to restore the public's confidence in systems which were looked at as as failing by the public. And suddenly, because of the Jesse Smollett case, he was able to praise the city of Chicago officials, praise the Cook County justice system, and praise the CPD repeatedly in this case. Certainly broadens the scope of the whole thing. And it might explain a lot why a disorderly conduct case became the most prominent case in the nation for months. Okay, let's move on. In this case, by the way, Tom, the Chicago Police Department really shined. They put 25 people on this case because the allegation Mr. Smollett made of a hate crime was serious, and the Chicago Police Department did not sweep it under the rug. They didn't just give lip service to it. They tore the matter apart. They accepted Mr. Smollett as a a truth-sayer, as the victim of a hate crime, they showed respect for him and his family, and they thoroughly tore it apart. And I put six police officers on the witness stand during the trial to tell the jury what the devil these folks did and worked so hard on it with thousands of hours, all this work and effort, and then it turned to, out to be for naught because it was a fake crime. That's all good to hear. Uh, Shelley, do you agree with that? I don't. Dan Webb is saying here that the Chicago Police Department respected Jesse and his family, but the disrespect that the family felt is the reason that Kim Fox ended up in the big scandal that she was later put into. Um, CPD was leaking an abundance of information, much of it untrue or unverifiable. And one of the Smollett family members reached out to Kim Fox to ask her to transfer the case to the FBI because they were concerned with how they were being treated and how the case was being treated. Kim Fox said that she asked for the case to be transferred, quote, in the interest of making sure this case was handled with the utmost integrity and with minimal amounts of leaks. For Dan Webb to be saying that the case was handled perfectly and 
Jesse's family and Jesse were respected and believed from the beginning, it's verifiably false because the family was so upset at how they were being treated and that the way that the case was being handled that they asked for it to be transferred to the FBI early on. Shelley, is it in the record that Kim Fox requested transfer to the FBI and she was turned down? Yes, it is. And who turned it down? She contacted then Superintendent Eddie Johnson, and he did not, uh, I don't think he replied to her after she requested it to be transferred. He said he would look into it, and then there was no follow-up. Hmm. Uh, I never heard anything about this. Uh, yeah, that was pretty big news. That was why Kim Fox ended up recusing herself later, because the family had reached out to her with concerns. Even Dan Webb admitted that the family reaching out to Kim Fox is perfectly fine for them to reach out yes, as did. victims in the case. But she then recused herself because it looked improper later. Okay. Now, Anthony Moore told police on at least three occasions and told the special prosecutor's office and testified in court that he did have a close look at the two suspects that I believe just about everyone agrees were the two main suspects and really only suspects in the case. He had a close look at them running from the scene of the crime, and he identified one of them as a white male. Now, he said the same thing many times, a tall white male. Why was his testimony, in the end, pretty much disregarded by the jury and pretty much, I guess, dismissed by you and your office? Let me answer that. That's a fair question, Tom. Uh, by the way, that it was not dismissed by me and my office. We thoroughly investigated Mr. Moore's information yes. uh, during our investigation. So we're very much aware of Mr. Moore, and the jury heard it. Jurors get to resolve these issues. The fact is, Mr. Moore's testimony, the evidence is the following, is that he was a security guard, and he saw two people with masks on, 2 o'clock in the morning, run by him as he was looking out the window of a restaurant where he was doing security work. And he had, based on my estimate, about one-tenth, one-tenth of one second. <laughs> oh, Shelley, I know you have a few comments about that last sentence or two. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, Anthony Moore was not inside the restaurant looking out, but actually outside the restaurant, standing just feet away from the suspects when they ran by him. This is on video footage, which Dan Webb's team showed in court and which he has, certainly has access to. So Anthony Moore was outside of the restaurant. The men ran by him and it came out in court that he shined his flashlight in their face when they were just in one of the men's face when he was just feet away from Anthony Moore. The second point that Dan Webb brings up here is that he estimates that they, that Anthony Moore only saw the suspects for one-tenth of a second. But it's impossible. You know, you can see on the video that he's watching these guys run towards him. Anthony Moore describes their actions and their appearance in great detail in his police report. And so it's very clear that Dan Webb is making sort of extreme statements here in order to discredit Anthony Moore's statements. Anthony Moore had time to take out his flashlight and shine it 
in the man space. He had time to describe both men's appearances, their height and weight, that what they were wearing, how they were behaving. So it's very clear that he was able to look at them for more than one-tenth of a second. How long would you say? I would say that at least probably three to five seconds, at least. Fair enough. Um, And probably longer, but you can see that on, on film, that he's looking at them for quite some time. And, you know, I think that Dan Webb is making this extreme statement uh, dishonestly in order to cause confusion and invalidate the eyewitness testimony and discredit him. Okay. Anthony Moore seemed to testify that he was made uncomfortable, I guess is fair to say, in the special prosecutor's office. He said he felt pressured. He he came down voluntarily and was interviewed by us. We didn't put him in the grand jury or put him under any pressure to do anything. But we did do an interview. And after we did the interview, we we wrote it up like we do with every other case. And we gave him a chance to read it, to change it, to edit it do whatever he wanted to do. And and he did. And so, look, the fact that he might believe, I don't want to, look, people coming into a special prosecutor office might believe that there's a little bit of pressure there. But at the same time, there's nothing that happened that did anything to try to threaten him or anything whatsoever. And he never said that he was threatened at all. And so we followed normal procedures. We, We brought out in court exactly what happens so we, we had no hidden agenda. The jury knew exactly what happened in our office. And I think the jury concluded nothing improper at all happened. I know you want to comment on what Dan Webb said about what went on in the special prosecutor's office with Anthony Moore. Please. I think that he did not answer your question there about why the statement was changed. And he left out the four most important words that Anthony Moore told them repeatedly for hours which was that he saw a white male run by him. They left that out of the statement, gave it to Anthony Moore. Anthony Moore testified that he, by that time, felt pressured and threatened to change his story and signed the statement um, as it was. You know, Dan Webb is not explaining how that very important detail uh, disappeared from Anthony Moore's testimony. I think that a very important point that you made right there, there was there's no good explanation for why the most important statement from Anthony Moore, the only eyewitness, was deleted from his statement, not by Anthony Moore, in spite of all their efforts to get him to change. Well, when he didn't, they ended up changing it themselves. In further testimony by Anthony Moore, he mentioned that he saw a third person after the two Osendero brothers or whomever uh, ran by, he saw a third person in the distance, about 75 feet away, on the sidewalk, on all fours. That conforms our general understanding of the case that after the 
two alleged assailants attacked Jussie. That was Jussie on all fours. He also said he didn't look like he was in harm's way or was injured. I think he said something like maybe he was looking for something on the ground. And that's why he didn't pursue that. He didn't call out. He didn't go to help. But it does conform to Jussie's story that he was attacked. They knocked him down. They roughed him up some. And the white guys, at least one of which he said at one time was a white guy, ran away. Wouldn't that compel the police to at least do some investigation along those lines, start looking for a possible white suspect? Well, that clearly happened. The police officers tell yes, the police officers were, <laughs> they were trying to figure out who did this. Uh, so the police officers, uh, <clears throat> when they were doing their investigation, uh, before the evidence developed that it was a hoax, the police were giving complete credibility to Mr. Smollett's allegation. So the fact that one of the attackers, according to Smollett, was white, was clearly investigated by the police. So there was never, there, the police never ignored that. That was part of their investigation. Eventually it turned out to be incorrect. Okay, hey, Shelley, I know you have some comments about the way the Chicago police conducted the investigation, even in the earliest days. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I don't think that they really did pursue the white suspect, as Dan Webb is saying here. When the only eyewitness was brought to a lineup, he was shown a lineup of black men. So, you know, that doesn't really uh, bode well for pursuing the white suspect that he told police he saw. The second thing is there was another witness who police interviewed outside of who who was standing outside the building before the attack and saw a man who was white with a rope hanging out of his pocket. The police on the stand had quite a few strange reasons for why they did not take this witness seriously as well. The third point I just want to make quickly is that the video of the suspects running from the scene and then getting into a taxi outside the Hyatt Hotel shows a light-skinned man that you can see, and the second man is wearing a black face mask, and he's the one both Anthony Moore and Jesse said was white under the under the face mask. So police had that video within three days of the attack. They did not tell the public about the video and, in fact, told us that they didn't find anything. So I think that they had a lot of evidence that there was a white suspect, and they did not share that with the public very early on, and that's a major red flag. Shelley, did they have any evidence that there should be black suspects in the early days of the investigation? Not at all. They had no evidence. All three witnesses, including Jesse, told them that the suspects were white. The video shows white-skinned or white people. They had no evidence whatsoever and of, of anyone else than a white man. Okay, let's move on. Let's hear a little more from Dan Webb. Can you tell us how the police or your office first got on the trail of the Osendero brothers? I will do that. That's a fair question. Um, and it's actually, it shows you the, the police officers that were put in charge of this case are hardworking, really dedicated police officers uh, and detectives, and they testified during the trial. And basically, this is what they explained. 
They didn't know who, what happened here. They didn't have any evidence. Okay, Smollett is saying he got attacked by two people. One was white. They yelled out all these mega country anti-Trump slogans, and right. and, and 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 they thought it was a you know a serious. And they put a noose around the Mr. Smollett's neck. They had no evidence. Smollett didn't. As it turned out at trial, Smollett refused to cooperate with the police after he reported the crime. He didn't cooperate. He refused to turn over his phone. He re- refused to give any DNA. And so Smollett would not cooperate. Shelley, you have some thoughts about what Dan Webb just said about Jesse's cooperation. Definitely. You know, Dan Webb is saying that Jesse refused to cooperate by not giving them his phone and DNA. But actually, Jesse and we all have the constitutional right to choose what we want to give to the police or to law enforcement. We have the right not to be searched if we don't want to. And so Jesse was simply engaging and invoking his own rights in this case. It's not criminal behavior and it's not refusal to cooperate by simply having the right to privacy when you're in a situation like this and the victim um, of a hate crime, as police said they believed at that time. He did not have to give them anything, and no. he simply... No, he didn't. Hey, you mm-hmm. know, Shelley, this reminds me of the Kyle Rittenhouse case when the prosecutor in front of the jury brought up the fact that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, before he answered any questions to the police, asked for an attorney. And the prosecutor made that seem like he was dodging or whatever, and the judge uh, tore into him, said, how dare you, how dare you, in front of the jury, attack this man for asking for his rights? So I think it's a very similar situation, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's completely similar. The only difference is that in this case, nobody did that. Nobody stood up for <laughs> the rights of Jesse or, or all of us. And instead, Jesse was treated like a criminal for invoking his rights. We still have some more hard questions, though. Just one quick one about the Osandero brothers. There came a time when you served a search warrant on their home. The police searched the home, and they found what's been described in news reports as a cache of guns, including tactical weapons and ammo, and some drugs, heroin and cocaine, at their home when they served the search warrant. And Now, that seemed to indicate to some people that the Osandera brothers might be facing far more serious charges than disorderly conduct for the weapons and the drugs and whatever at their home. No charges were ever brought. What happened to all that? What was that? Well, here's what well, this all was brought out during the trial, so the jury gets to decide it, and they have. But here's what the facts are, Tom. The facts are there were guns in the Osandero residence, all of which are legally registered. There was not a single illegal gun ever in that residence. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, unless you want to say there should be no Second Amendment. Uh, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I know. I'm not, I'm not saying you're saying that, okay? But, but I'm saying that, look, the defense tried to make a huge deal out of how awful this was, a cache of It's not true. There were, I, think there's, I think there were three guns found, and every one of them, I, I don't remember the exact. They were all registered. Every one of them was, mm-hmm. and, was re, and were returned to the Austin Darrell brothers because they were legally in possession with Floyd cards. And so the guns were, I think, a nothing issue for the jury. People do have a right to have guns if they want, under as long as you do it legally. 
on to the Osendero brothers now. And uh, I think you have two important points to make here. Uh, let's take one at a time. The first is the talk about the guns. Shelley, what do you say about that? Yeah, you know, Dan Webb is saying that it's not a big deal at all that there were guns in the home. However, as we've discussed earlier, Ola Osendario is a convicted felon, and he's not allowed to live in a home with guns. However, the police admitted in court that in the room um, in which the guns were found, Ola had two ID cards in the room. There was mail addressed to him for that address in the room. There was also a 12-gauge shotgun and assault rifle with a scope and laser sight, ammunition, a 5-millimeter gun in a safe, and drugs in a safe. And when asked in court, you know, if Ola was in possession of this gun, that would be a big problem for him. The, the detective said, yes, that's true, if it's in their possession. He then said that they tested the guns for DNA, but do not know the results of the, the mm. DNA test. So they don't know if the guns were in Ola's possession because they apparently did not get the results or ask for the results of the DNA test. Um, and this was a big deal for the prosecution in court, so much so that in their closing arguments, they spent about 20 minutes trying to explain away these drugs and Ola living in a home. Uh, sorry. They tried to explain away these guns and Ola living in a home with guns. And they went on and on about how he didn't actually live in that home. So it was quite a big deal for them, despite what Dan Webb is saying here. Yes. I, and I would have to say to a fair minded person, it's really a stretch to say that, hey, that was all very legitimate for a convicted felon to be in the house with several guns. Okay, but let's move on to the drugs. Let's hear what Dan Webb says about drugs. Number two, as far as drugs, there was one small, clear envelope that had a speck of white in it that they couldn't even test it out to prove what it was. So that's the drug issue. That was all presented to the jury, and it was a nothing issue, completely nothing issue. Shelley, do you think it was a nothing issue? I don't. And, you know, Dan Webb definitely lied in that case. Um, he says that it was a speck of white and that it was so small they couldn't even test it. But in court, um, Detective Thies said that the drugs that he found in the safe were suspected heroin. And then he said it was actually tested to be cocaine. He later said in his same testimony that an FBI, an FBI agent came and did analysis on the drugs, and that's how they found out it was cocaine and not heroin. Dan Webb is the lead prosecutor on the case. He very well knows that there was testing of these drugs if he's doing a good job and a thorough job on the case. So for him to say now in an interview that it was so small it couldn't even be tested is quite alarming, I think. Both can't be true. Uh, that's for sure. I think it's been very interesting to hear both the complete uh, interview of Dan Webb from episode four and the counterpoint from a lead investigative reporter, Shelley Stanley, to Dan Webb's comments.
And I think it's only fair. We're just looking for the truth, whatever it is. Shelly, I'll give you a chance. Do you have one last comment before we move on to episode six? You know, I have a couple things to say. I think that because this case is one that's focused on lying and Jesse was accused of lying, saying one lie six different times, um, you know, that's what the case is based on. And yet in this interview, I counted the special prosecutor saying eight different lies throughout the interview. Um, And these are verifiable lies. These are lies about the drugs, the guns of the of the star witnesses. These are lies about the witness and what the the eyewitness at the scene saw and where he was standing. You know, there are eight lies that I counted personally that the special prosecutor told. And for me, that's extremely alarming. It sends up many red flags because the special prosecutor is in a position here of power. He's been invested with public trust to do a fair, honest investigation of this case. And so if he is lying eight times in a 30-minute interview, um, it leads me to wonder about his evidence. Because if you have a case of overwhelming evidence, as he says he does, there would be no need to lie about these various things. Yes, You would have the evidence you need. You don't have to discount or hide evidence or hide certain things, you know. And so it just leads me to have grave doubts about his case, about um, the evidence that he has, and about his investigation. Hey, uh, Shelley, I want to thank you for all the time you've devoted to this entire case and uh, to us for the Jussie podcast. And there's more to come. Uh, Shelley, thank you so much. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time on episode six of Jussie, the podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.